0: So it's nice to be back sitting here with you all or this particular configuration of the group and there's I know one or two who've arrived since I was last sitting in here and welcome. There's quite a rich offering of questions that have been put in, and I'm looking forward to engaging with them. And as I said, there will also be some space for if anyone has a question that they would like to ask directly, um, you'd be very welcome to do that. With questions, I just want to say that I, although we traditionally call it questions and answers, um, I think it probably more usefully described as questions and responses because I can be reasonably confident I will respond to a question. Whether I will answer it or not, I certainly can't guarantee. And if I don't quite get what you meant by the question, um, you're welcome to let me know um, that there was something else you had in mind. Um, Most of these questions aren't signed. In fact, I don't think any of them are, which is fine, but it means I don't know who's asked me the question and therefore can't really go on much more than what's here. Um, so I thought I'd start with an easy question first it's usually the best sort of thing and this one says if there was a call for it could we have time for questions after every talk? Um, obviously a practical question Um, it could be so it's really up to each teacher whether they would like to do that but I will mention it to the other teachers, and I'm certainly happy to have questions after I talk. Um, and sometimes the interesting thing about questions after the talk is that we can go into a kind of a trying-to-figure-it-out mode rather than just receiving and digesting what's been offered. So there's a, a little bit of a sort of a, um, a balance there to be struck, and sometimes actually Although, as I said, I'm very open to hearing questions. Sometimes I might feel like, actually, I'd rather we had silence at the end of the talk and then take questions at another point. And so part of the intention here is questions at this time for anything. that may have come in talks. Now obviously, if it's something that somebody said, it's useful to hear from them. And there will, again, I think next week, be another time for questions, just to let you know that's something we will structure into how we do this and that. So that's the, that's the easy question. Yes, it is possible, and it may happen, but it's not guaranteed. Um, So, actually, before I continue, I'd just like to get a sense, and this doesn't commit you to anything, but does anybody have a question that they might, or think they might like to be able to ask? Just so I have some sense of timing, and what I'm, okay, I've got at least one there. Great. That doesn't mean you have to, if you don't want to, when it comes to it, and somebody else who hasn't put their hand up can still choose to, but at the moment, okay, because if I saw 16 hands, I'd think, okay, I've got to do this a bit differently than I'm otherwise thinking I'll try and do. The risk and the danger, of course, is that a number of these questions I could talk about for a really long time. Um, I'll endeavour to be concise. And I'm aware that I might be speaking a little more quickly than sometimes. Let me know if you need me to speak more clearly or slowly. I, uh, since I was here on Friday, I drove to Eastbourne, which is a five or more hour drive, and taught a retreat there, and came back late last night. So uh, I noticed I've been kind of going a bit more busily <clears throat> than perhaps you have in sitting here. So, <clears throat> Questions? please can you say something about the inspiration of walking between the skeleton and the Buddha in the walking room? And another, or a lesser matter, I'm not sure if that's the phrase, but anyway, another question, is the skeleton a he or a she? (laughs) So on the latter part of that, um, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean... is a skeleton in that realm where we were designated as one or the other. The person from whom the skeleton came, as I understand it, was a man. That's the information that came to us with um, with the skeleton, but there's no certificate to that effect. And whether the skeleton is currently... Actually, it does say was the skeleton, excuse me. Um, so the person's asking in the past tense, It was it a he or a she? It was a she. Oh, sorry, a he. <laughs> just just to confuse you. It, it was, as I understand. He. And as for the the inspiration, I'm just, I was just actually happy to hear the question. I'm not sure I have an answer to it. As in, what was the inspiration of putting a Buddha here and the skeleton there? Well, actually, the Buddha had been there for many, many years sitting on that spot before the skeleton appeared. In fact, the Buddha in there was the first Buddha we had in Gaia House, as maybe some of you know or remember from way back. We didn't used to have a, a Buddha Rupa in the house. And the uh, the golden Buddha image, which I'm guessing is the one still in the walking room, if someone hasn't moved it, was given to us by the Amrawati monastic community um, about uh, 12... It was 1999 after the, they opened their new temple. And it's a, a scale model of the very large Buddha they have, in their um, main meditation shrine room in Amrawati in uh, north of London. And the Buddha, we put in that location, sorry, the, the skeleton we put in that location because it seemed like the best place in the house to put it. I'm not sure any conscious intention was given to the fact that the Buddha and the skeleton are facing each other and that one could, if one wishes, walk between them. But I think there's something very useful and very powerful in the fact that one, if we choose, could do so. the the message that the Buddha gave us again and again about the transitoriness of our lives, the fact that we are not here forever, and the skeleton representing and expressing that quite powerfully. And I don't know if it's still the case, but my memory is also somewhat pungently, um, that uh, one can actually, you know, there's a a particular smell as well as an image that goes with the skeleton. And so whatever your inspiration might be is... uh, What's important there, but uh, I think having the skeleton at all is a wonderful thing. It's very easy for meditation practice to start to become something of a sort of a a mental or even spiritual technology, and for us to lose sight of the fact. Perhaps, maybe not us here, but for sometimes for people to lose sight of the fact that it's about really facing up to the reality of our mortality. This is one of the profound inspirations for the was. Profound inspiration for the Buddha's own quest and his practice, and for one's own, I think. and so if it's something you've enjoyed or found beneficial, that's great. And if it's something you haven't checked out or you've been wondering about, try it and see. See what happens for you to spend a little time in the presence of the skeleton. Sometimes in monasteries in Thailand, there are many skeletons, or all, all the the monks who die just ask their corpse to be left there for people to observe. And people get to see it slowly rotting away. This is one of the practices the Buddha suggested, that we contemplate death. We contemplate our mortality, that we reflect on a daily basis that this body, this body, is subject to that. This body will not escape aging, illness and death. And nor anybody, any of the bodies we encounter will not escape this. And that's something, it's something very powerful. I think it brings a, a quickening and an amplifying of inspiration for practice. and hence the uh, skeleton is uh, there. although there were those who thought it would cause a bit of distress or possibly even turn people off, and um, we had to have a, a serious discussion. But uh, I'm really glad that the collective decision was, as it was, and continues to be, that we have a skeleton at guy house Can you say how the practice can best support feelings of being overwhelmed So it's hard for us sometimes in the practice of meditation and being here we can feel very strong powerful emotions at times, very strong at times, physical sensations, maybe pain, emotional processes, maybe forms of distress. And the sense of it being too much for us is one that's really hard to handle. It can be a sense of, I can't handle this and I'm being overwhelmed, is like I'm being carried away or lost in the stream or the pattern of whatever it is that we're overwhelmed by. And so, one thing that's really useful is to be able to notice what that is. Oh, this is overwhelm. Even though we might not even be able to sort out or know quite how to handle what it is that's going on, the fact that we can actually, oh, this is overwhelm, or it and and the sense of overwhelm tends to be it's like, this is too much, or this is more than I can handle. And sometimes that's coming from a fear and a, a, a an unwillingness to actually meet the experience. And sometimes there's an objective truth that the intensity is more than we have the resources for at that moment. So with that, what's generally helpful is to come back to the body, to know what is the felt experience in the body, to be aware of where it might be intense or more strong than we can hold, and initially not to direct one's attention to the intensity. In a a place of overwhelm, we actually want to see where are my resources, where is my ground. And so although our body might be filled with fear or with anger or with distress of some kind, and these are things we can be overwhelmed by, we might notice also that actually where my buttocks press into the seat or the chair or the cushion, it feels different. It's just kind of solid and dense. Where my feet touch the ground when I stand or when I walk It doesn't feel, in that place, overwhelmed. And to actively and consciously take the attention to the places where it feels more okay. This isn't an avoidance or a denial, but just recognizing that when things feel too much, we need to back off. And one of the arts of practice is learning what's a useful degree of proximity to difficult experiences. So that we don't turn our back on them and run away if they're difficult. But nor do we feel we have to somehow stay sort of pressed hard up against them, working on them or working with them or doing something that we think we're supposed to do. And so the capacity to put our attention somewhere. This is what the Buddha talked about in terms of wise attention. Skillful or wise attention is that attention when we, it's not what we pay attention to, it's the way we pay attention that if it leads to a decreasing or a reduction in reactivity, specifically in terms of aversion, in terms of clinging, or in terms of confusion, delusion, then that's a wise way of attending. And a way of attending that leads to an increase in in aversion, in, um, in, in clinging, or in confusion, that's not understood as, as, as skillful or useful attention. So seeing where can I put my attention that's helpful here? This is what we train so much in meditation, is the capacity to put our attention somewhere. Sometimes we might need to take in the space around us to notice, Okay, there's the, first of all, the ground, feel where we touch the ground, then notice there's space. Sometimes we're trying to handle an experience, and physically, energetically, we try and handle a difficult experience in the body. Because that's actually what we've learned, and it's useful to do that in meditation. But sometimes, energetically, the experience is larger than the physical body. Energetically, it can be way out here. And sometimes what we need to ask ourselves is, how much space does this need? And it's not about getting spaced out or losing contact with the ground, but actually, okay, how much space does it need? What if I give it the space it needs? Because a lot of what happens in overwhelm is that somehow we're trying to control it, and we can't. We're trying to contain it, and we can't. And the struggle with that can be really painful and scary. And it comes For most of us, out of the early experiences we have as infants, as children, where we are completely overwhelmed by the strength of our inner experience and we don't have any basis for handling it, and unless someone else is there who can support us to do that, and mostly they aren't always going to be there, even if there is someone, we have the association with overwhelm of being annihilated. And it's scary. It's like our whole sense of our experience is deconstructed in the experience of overwhelm and that's kind of what we're afraid of so it's a lot of fear with overwhelm for most of us being able to see that the fear projects into the future that's what fear does what's going to happen if this keeps going or it gets worse the truth is even if I'm right here feeling overwhelmed I'm not being annihilated by it it hasn't annihilated me although it may seem to be threatening to do so actually I'm here And so, first of all, seeing Can I give it? Find the ground, give it space. See where is it okay to make contact. Now, if it's continuous and overwhelming in a way that doesn't feel safe for us, seek support. Go and speak to someone. Ask. It's okay. It's the right thing to do. And sometimes that's what we need. We need support. If we have the resource to be with it in that sense of making space, we just say, "Oh, this is overwhelming." Sometimes that's all we can say. Just, "This is overwhelming." This is overwhelm. Noticing the difference between this is overwhelm and I am overwhelmed, in which the sense of self takes up that experience. And generally, there's a lot of fear in that when we start to define ourselves as this. Rather, than, oh, Overwhelm is like this experience is a lot larger than I think I'm able to handle. It may be larger than the resources I have available objectively, then we need some support. But it may be more workable than we imagine. It's also really important not to judge ourselves, not to have any idea that I should be able to handle everything. I imagine, if, certainly for myself, I don't know where other people's practices. But if I was on the road and a car came and ran me over, in lots of ways that would be overwhelming. It would not be possible to handle that. Hmm. Maybe in some ways it could be handled. I don't know. I've not had that happen before, but. I'm of course hoping that's not going to happen to anyone here, but sometimes it feels like that. Something has come and knocked us over. And sometimes actually just coming back to a simple metaphrase of, may I be safe, may I be well, can be just a connection, a point we can land with something that's more steady, to steady the heart and mind. Sometimes when things are really hard, we want to come and Maybe come back to something more devotional. If we have a connection to taking the refuges, maybe just chanting the refuges. You know, buddham saranang gachami. Bowing to the Buddha and just, you know, I can't do it, but here I am. One of the useful and powerful things in overwhelm, if we can extract learning from it, is that we can't do it. And overwhelm is a place where we get confronted with that. But we need to really honour the truth of our humanness, which also needs to be taken care of and supported in that place. And I think that's probably as much as I can usefully say theoretically, because um, if you're working with overwhelm, I suggest you meet with one of us as soon as you're able to, because uh, that's where some of the support that's available here can be found. Can you explain karma? What is intentional action? Okay, so that kind of limits the options, doesn't it? Because I was going to explain karma by saying intentional action. And if we know what that is, the question then is, what do we mean by that? Probably you've all heard some teaching in some way or form around this. But this is actually a central feature of the Buddha's teaching. And it's interesting how in a certain way, it could be at some mild risk of being lost from certain modern translations of, of teachings as they, they step out of the sort of the more traditional framework. Um, it's perhaps spoken about less. So intentional could be also translated as volitional. It's like volition is a particular um, factor of human experience, and um, when we talk about the the aggregates, the, uh, the the construction of experience, we talk about form, feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness. Now, volitions is also translated as sankharas, and sankharas it's understood as volition, um, and it's those. Um, activities that take place generated by some internal impulse. Now it's not always a conscious intention or it's not always a conscious volition and therefore karma or the, the the thing we're talking about is essentially an action of body or of speech or of thought that has had some precipitating factor and in fact they all do. Um, so that we we start to look and see what is the precipitating factor. The key thing about karma is understanding that the quality of where it arises from, where that intention comes from, will infuse the outcome, the ultimate effect, the karma vipaka, the, the fruit of the action. And I think you're probably familiar with the, the teaching that you know those actions that come from a wholesome intention will lead to a wholesome result. That... Uh, so and those actions that come from an unwholesome intention lead to an unwholesome result. And that the you know the, the whole um, you know element of the eightfold path of wise intention is to orient towards those intentions which lead to wholesome results. And that is expressed specifically as, you know, non greed, non hatred, non cruelty. And that those intentions which lead to harmful results are, are greed hatred, cruelty. Actions coming from basically craving and aversion. But to understand what the action is, of course we inevitably get involved with the question of the actor. And I think this is part of where it becomes complicated and challenging. And um, there's a number of Questions that go to that, so I'm just gonna pause at that point with the uh, the question. I don't. I mean, again, there could be much more said on the topic of karma there, but yeah, intentional action is anything that's arising out of either a wholesome or an unwholesome motivation. And I'd just like to see, I've got no idea where the questions might fit that come, so um, I'd like to take the questions that were here if you'd like.
1: Yes, I've I've begun to realise that I'm like that character in um, James Joyce's novel who lives a short distance from his body, except in my case I live in my head. And I wonder if you have some really baby ways of just allowing me to start to feel. I'm okay with physical sensations, mm. but all of the emotional stuff, I know the words, mm. I can use it quite convincingly. Mm. The vocabulary is there, but it doesn't link up
0: with feelings in, in my body. Okay. And I wonder if you can do sure. in a sure. yeah. Okay. So... In terms of becoming more fully and deeply embodied in our experience, being able to access what's going on, um, I think it's really important not to set up some idea of what it's going to be like when we do so. Now, if what's happening is you're aware of an emotional process taking place, and it sounds like you are at times, but it's up from the neck up, yeah, and it's great to to see that. that, that's not at all unusual is to ask oneself, okay, what does this feel like and where do I feel it? They're the question. Now, if as a result of asking that we get a sense of, I don't know what it feels like and I don't know where I feel it or even if I feel it, then the question is to ask, what, or the question to ask is, what can I feel in any way in any part of my body right now? Even if it appears to have no obvious or clear relationship to the emotion. And just notice, okay, what's here? So what we might feel is, oh, a sense of warmth, sense of ease or a sense of tightness, maybe some sense of dullness or numbness or brightness, but just noticing what is there without assuming it is or is not connected to the emotion. Just, this is what's here. Okay, so I'm feeling angry. And actually, feel cold. Okay. Maybe it's because it's cool today. Maybe the anger expresses itself as some element of coolness. I'm not saying it does. But just to be open in that sense. The other thing to be doing that can be useful is just to check, how is it for you that when you go to your body to try and feel the emotional element in the body you don't find something. How is that for you? Like, is it okay? Is it not okay? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Are you pleased? Displeased? Don't mind either way? And you don't have to answer that. But that's the question to be asking to get to see how is it for me that I can't. Because often there will be other layers of experience on top of the emotion that might be more to do with thinking I should or frustrated that I can't and subtle layers of contraction or holding around the experience born of our ideas of what could or should be happening, what I would like or not like to be happening. We might think I'd really like to feel this from up here, but something in us saying is I'm not sure I want to feel this at all. And say, just to be interested, what's my relationship to feeling these experiences? Because if, in fact, you can't feel anything particular in this moment, that's fine. Just notice what the body is experiencing. And something else that can be useful is just to take a few breaths slightly more full and deeply. Or not really extending them, but just being really allowing the body to breathe fully. Bringing your attention up to your shoulders. And as you breathe out, just let your attention drop down through your body. And just notice whatever you notice in your body. And this is the experience. If there's not anything beyond that, leave it at that. So feel free if you want to respond or ask further. You don't have to. Are you separating out in any way the
1: physical sensations, which, as you were talking, I could pick up hmm. sitting feet on the floor? Hmm. And how do I progress then to
0: feeling an um, emotion rather than just a word in my head? Hmm. So don't. I wouldn't set it up as a progression but more as an interest. That there's an interest to feel an emotion. Can you? Do you know what that sense of... It sounds like you're interested. Is that right? Yeah. What does that interest feel like? Intellectual curiosity. Any response in the body at all? To the interest? No. Huh. It feels like I'm confessing I don't know how to read. Huh. Huh. Is that something that when you say confession, is it like this is not okay? Absolutely. Ah, okay. So there's some judgment or some expectation that you should be having a different experience. Okay. So as long as that's sitting on top of what's happening, um, that's probably what you need to attend to first. I'm hearing that, you Yeah. You know, it's... Yeah. Here. yeah. And what's it like for you? Sorry? And what's it like for you that that's the only way you're experiencing it? so is there a problem?
1: What I read there are other ways of doing it and I've heard so
0: somebody's ideas wanting sorry? I was just wanting wanting Wanting. to have this other experience Mm -hmm. yeah so whenever we're doing that we're kind of in a way getting into the a very familiar tangle with life. If this is how it's showing up, meet it the way it is. The wanting to have the feeling is actually somewhat in the way. Let yourself have the feeling of no feeling. If that's what the feeling is, that is the feeling. And sometimes a neutrality or a numbness or a sense of disconnection is the feeling. And notice what it's like just to let oneself experience that rather than trying to figure out how to get to the having of a feeling in the body. It's great that the interest is there, but I think just to hold back on the sense of expectation or absolutely to let go of any idea of there should be. Maybe the emotion doesn't have a lot of charge. Maybe it's just... Tottering around in the mind and it doesn't really have a significant bodily effect. Maybe that's just how it is. And maybe not. Maybe there's more. But just stay with what's true for you. And what someone wrote in a book about what someone should or shouldn't be experiencing. That's their problem. You're welcome. Do you have a question? Yeah, I'm just on the chat that
1: asked. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons I was um, hoping there might be an opportunity to ask questions is I'm, I'm interested in what's going on for the people, so mm-hmm. that's that's a sort of you know part of mm-hmm. the request. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always found that helpful. To yeah. Know what's happening yeah. Yeah. Question. Well, it's very basic actually in some ways, and it sort of links with what's just been asked, and that's about. Um, I'm. Kind of desperately um, looking for progress, Hmm. which in my mind would probably take the form of something happening. Hmm. Um, And um, so while I'm sort of closer to, I suppose, closer to an emotional state, let's say, a bit more Hmm. emotional in some way, I sort of feel, yeah, okay, there's. Something's happening. <laughs> yeah. That's good news. And then other times I'm feeling more sort of cut off or caught up in my head and, mm. you know, irritated or annoyed or, you know, pissed off with the place or something or other like that. At those points I think, well, this is annoying, this isn't getting me anyway So <laughs> I realise there's something um, I'm not quite getting, but, you know, it's something about relating, I suppose. To
0: Yes, it's interesting is that, that you—it's interesting that you counterpoint it as someone's having as an emotion that lets you know something's happening, yeah. and then what you describe in terms of feeling cut off or angry or annoyed—as those, those weren't emotions, yeah, I it's um, and they sound yeah. like you know—they they sound like uh, <coughs> experiences that are happening, but not ones that you're taking as signs of progress. Yeah. Maybe allowing yourself to experience the negative reactions that you're having, rather than seeing them as some evidence of lack of progress, allowing yourself to experience them would actually be something really useful. The, the idea of progress is both helpful and fundamentally problematic in terms of Dharma practice. And uh, understanding how to handle and to hold that, that kind of concept is really important so in a somewhat apparently self-contradictory way it's probably going to be a real mark of progress to be not so concerned about making progress it's like what would it be like if you gave up trying to make progress here what would that be for you what would that mean what would it require so so most of us come into meditation with a lot of strong patterns volitional patterns around striving towards success and uh, and the way we can hear the Buddha's teachings suggests often that that's what we're supposed to be doing but uh, for many of us actually what we need to be finding is a way to take our foot off the accelerator to actually not be pushing and to settle back more into what's right here what's right now and the whole sense of Identity and self that is wrapped around the sense of hoping for progress, fearing of regress, or, you know, like, I'll waste my time if I don't get somewhere here. What if you were to get absolutely nothing from all of this? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) After weeks or months of it, get absolutely nothing It wouldn't feel so good. Have you tried it? So you think it wouldn't feel so good. The anticipation is that it wouldn't feel so good. Yeah, It wouldn't necessarily give us a good self-reflection or something we could take home and tell our friends about. Look, look at all of this that I didn't achieve. And yet there might be a remarkable liberation. The very sense of having to get somewhere else is founded in a misunderstanding. And the fulfillment of practice is not the getting somewhere else, but actually releasing ourselves from the misunderstanding. So it goes deep, this territory of progress. And from some external objective thing, we could say that, you know, we're interested in the end of suffering, or we're interested in discovering our human potential and the ways in which we can see that that shifts or changes, ways in which we maybe suffer a little less. In certain areas, or ways in which we have more access to certain capacities, possibilities, wisdom, compassion, we can see those as prog- progress. But the fascination with the self in terms of measuring, of fascination of the self in terms of measuring its success and failure, is um, is one of the, the fundamental ways in which we suffer. Uh, the Buddha, Buddha spoke about the, the the whole conceit of being better than, worse than, or equal than and it's something that we get caught in like because it's only in relationship to how we measure ourselves against either our idea of ourselves or against other people that we find progress regress success failure make any sense so again my invitation would be there to allow yourself to just be where you are be wholehearted with your practice And uh, see what it is to go nowhere. Ultimately, it's a great relief. And strangely enough, life keeps going, doing what it's always done. With the questions, um, just that first point you touched, there's something lovely about opportunities for sharing and hearing from each other. And uh, It's also part of the framework of this particular time as a solitary retreat where that isn't something we are emphasizing to any great degree. So you might feel its absence, and that's how it is. And there may be room for a little more, but that's up to each of us. But as I said, I'll speak to the others. Well, I will endeavor to remember to speak when we next meet. I think it might be the beginning of next week that we'll all be in on the same day to talk about what's going on. Okay. Thank you. Were there any other live questions or responses so far? I'm watching the time ticking away and thinking, hmm. Okay. So in a way, a lot of these uh, questions I've got here are converging. What do you personally see? personally, you personally, underlined. Don't give me a textbook answer, I guess this means. What do you personally see as the goal of practice? Yes, seriously. (laughs) What is your relationship with this goal in daily life and practice? So, great question. We should all be interested in that. What I see as the goal of practice is, in a way, as I've just uh, suggested, it's the transformation of suffering, the reduction of suffering, of the unnecessary forms of struggle and stress that one generates and encounters internally and in the world. And the in a way the fulfilment or the deepening, the flowering of the many different capacities we have as human beings that are actually beautiful, noble and um, enriching to one's own life and of benefit to this world. So... You know, when we talk about goal as if, you know, is it to get fully enlightened and has anybody ever done that and what would it look like? Those kind of ideas of the goal, they get a little bit sort of too much in the head and that, you know, I can understand someone not liking hearing someone say, well, the goal is complete liberation, because it is. And yet what do we mean by that? Well, we need to understand what is suffering first. We also... Need to understand the nature of the experience of suffering we seek liberation from, and we need to understand the nature of what it is that wishes to be liberated from that suffering. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. What is it that we call me or us or even this world that we might wish for suffering to be transformed within ourselves, each other, or all beings? What are we talking about here? I think this is something that we know in our hearts that we have our own particular version or flavor of that interest, and some people will feel it more in terms of the sense of the end of suffering, and some people I think will feel it more in terms of the sense of the sort of the the filling of our human potential being what we can be in this world more completely. We might have a sense of the possibility of compassion or of or of freedom and the sense of There could be more. Yes, this could come into a deeper or fuller expression in my life. And for me personally, in daily life and in practice, it's really clear that through the practice and in my life, there is less suffering. I'd like to be able to say it was all gone. That's not the case. And there's definitely access and development of qualities that are more full, more rich, more available in more different situations than used to be. Absolutely. I I wouldn't do this if that wasn't the case. I don't imagine you would either. Really. Um, So I I don't know if this is asking for a a more detailed sort of statement of the face. It could sort of read a little bit like that. Um, I have absolutely no hesitation in expressing my complete inner certainty at the transformative power of this practice and this path where that might ultimately take us or lead and what that might look like or feel like for you or for me, I don't have any urge to try and say because it doesn't matter. What matters is that it moves clearly in the direction that I'm interested in. And if there's a place where we come to the end and say, hmm, we're finished, or it just opens up another vista, well, you know, hey. It's like climbing mountains wanting to get to the last mountain. Why would you want to get to the last mountain? You know, enjoy the view and then down into the next valley. And that's a useful metaphor for practice too, because it does seem there are times when we're up and things look clear and bright and done all the hard work and we've got the, the juice, the results, the fruit of it, and then something else comes along and we're in another cycle of struggle or challenge. So in that way it seems to me that the Buddha too went through cycles and challenges and had to face things that weren't easy throughout his life. I don't anticipate that I or anyone will be free of that. But how one holds it, that that can change. And this really brings us to the, um, the further questions that I'm going to try and weave a bit with together. Is the experience of a moment of mindfulness for a non enlightened being and a Buddha the same, or does a Buddha see, stroke, experience something other or more? Um. So we have this fascination, don't we? Understandably, like, what was the experience of the Buddha? I remember hearing a conversation. Um, was actually, I was, talking. It was at a, um, I think a teacher meeting in, uh, Insight Meditation Society and. Uh, Joseph Goldstein was commenting on some a teacher who'd said, You know, I've always really wondered, did the Buddha really have long ears and webbed feet? And Joseph's response, which I loved, he said, Actually, I don't really care about what his body looked like. I want to know what his mind was like. You know, how free? What was it like to be that free? Well, what had happened? Um, and I think also in that, uh, you know, a beautiful humility of, all, well, is so Joseph is probably the most respected teacher in our tradition. He's not claiming to say that he already knows everything to be known. Um, that can be known. But does the Buddha experience it, it any differently? What point of experience are we talking about? That's the question. Because the initial point of experience of just sensory data, because all, all the experience we ever had will be a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a thought. That's all there will be. And actually it's my view that the Buddha's experience of that will be exactly the same as our own. But what happens after that first point of contact is that then we actually start to have perceptions in which we make conclusions or form ideas and associations which then have reactions associated with them that of course completely colour what we call my experience or our experience. So the association that... Or the aspect of each experience that is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The Buddha, at least according to his own articulation of it, was free of the reactivity born out of greed, hatred, and delusion. So that reactivity to the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral was not something that arose. That's how he described it. I can't say what it was for him, but that's how he described it. He said, these have been uprooted. And he said once in a, a rather lovely um, dialogue he had with a, uh, a seeker whose name was Bahia who uh, had heard that the Buddha was quite a wise guy and could possibly help him and he came to find the Buddha to ask, can you teach me the essence of the teachings, of the practice that you, you offer? And the Buddha had just left on his arms around and he said to Bahia, this is not the time to ask the that's a target, is how he refers to himself. To ask him questions, he's, <laughs> I'm going to get my lunch. You know, I'm hoping someone's going to give me some lunch, and if they don't give it to me by midday, I won't get any. He didn't say all of that, but that's probably the subtext. But Bahia says, but but I might not live very long. I, I want to know. Can you tell me? I really want to know. And the Buddha says, no, no, this is not the time, Bahia. Let it be. And the third time, Bahia says, tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm paraphrasing. And the Buddha, rather sweetly it seems, if you ask him three times, he can't refuse. It happens on various occasions. The third time he always says, okay, bahia, this is how you should see your practice. And the, the paraphrase of it is, but um, what you may have heard, is that in the seeing, there is just what is seen. In the hearing, there is just what is heard. In the sensing, there is just what is sensed. And that, that includes smelling, tasting and touching. And in the cognized, there is just what is cognized. And this very simple teaching, that there's just this. So it's not that the Buddha sees more or has more in his experience. In that question we think, there's got to be something more that the Buddha gets. Actually, the Buddha gets less. He doesn't add to it everything else. That actually is what generates the suffering, the struggle, the entanglement, the identification, and the bondage in relationship to what is seen, heard, sensed and cognized. So it's it's a lovely piece and I fortunately got here with enough time to look it up and I want to um read it to you. So skipping over the initial bit which I've summarized for you. This is what the Buddha said at least in this translation. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen, and the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed, in the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself. So, it's important here that the Buddha isn't saying that this is the objective reality more than some other reality. He's saying this is how you should orient yourself, this is how you should practice or train yourself. And he goes on to say, Winba here, for you, in the seen is merely what is seen and the heard is merely what is heard, and the sensed is merely what is sensed, and the cognized is merely what is cognized, then bahia. So when you kept trained and able to see that then bahia, you will not be with that. When bahia, you are not with that, then you will not be in that. And when you are not in that, you will be neither here nor beyond, nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. And so what happens is when the experience arises, there becomes a sense of being with that. I, it's happening to me, or in me, or around me. And there's the experience and the sense of me being with it. And then in that, there there is an identification of self in relationship to it. And when, when that is not happening, when there is just the experience, one is neither here nor beyond, nor in between the two. One is not located in time or space, nor is one in any way dislocated from time or space. (coughs) Just this, just this is the end of suffering in the Buddha's teaching. So the experience from an enlightened or awakened perspective is actually stripped of what is otherwise added to it, which is the, the position of self and other, and the sense of separation that generates that that generates, and within which the sense of self is entangled and experiences suffering in relationship to experience, born of identifying with the wishing for or the wishing not to have this or that. So just picking that up or following through that with the the questions I also have here that I just touch on in this territory. In non-dual teachings like the Buddha, no, sorry, it says hi. Non-dual teachings, actually most of them were quite polite and said hello or hi, but I didn't read that out. Non-dual teachings like the Buddha say there is no self or doer. Who's meditating and can anything be obtained? Um, The Buddha didn't say there is no self. This is really important. Certain teachings seem to take that position, but that's not what the Buddha said. What the Buddha said was of the experiences that we encounter, we cannot take them as self, or if we do so, we will suffer. He wasn't making a metaphysical statement of absolute reality. He didn't say there was or was not a self. And in fact, in one, um, again, really important uh, conversation he had with a a wanderer by the name of, I can't quite precisely pronounce it, Vagotcha, um, which I didn't have time to look up, the guy, he came and said, is there a self? And the Buddha didn't say anything. He said, is there not a self? The Buddha didn't say anything. He says, is it that there is and there is not a self? And the Buddha said, nothing. So is it neither a self or not a self? And the Buddha didn't say anything. And afterwards Ananda, his his disciple, said to him, Lord, why didn't you answer? Why didn't you say these are good questions? (laughs) And he said, you know, if I said there was a self, this would be in contradiction of the teaching that I've given, that all things that arise pass away. If I said, and and the, the seeing of cessation of ending of things, means it makes no sense to say there is a self any more than any kind of other something, in fact. And yet, the teachings equally point to, and I equally point to, the arising of the self or of a phenomenon. So if we see it arising, we can't say it doesn't exist. To take either position is actually to fall out of the Buddha's teaching of the Middle Way. From an intellectual, conceptual point of view, we are only given these two options. We start off, many people coming into the Dharma think, oh, yeah, I've got a self. We haven't even thought about it. We've assumed it. Then we hear the teaching and think, oh, Buddha says, I haven't got one. Okay, so I haven't got one. Hmm, what's that about? You know, that neither of those positions are true. What we call self arises as a result of processes and conditions, and it passes as a result of processes and conditions. It is not a fixed, solid, or graspable phenomena But in fact, there is no such thing as a fixed, solid, or graspable phenomena. The very nature of all things is that they arise with conditions and dissolve with conditions, including the sense of being the someone who is observing that, or experiencing it, or commenting on it. That also arises and passes. And so... Who is meditating? Well, in one sense, it's you or me. And in another sense, meditation is what's meditating. What is meditation? What is happening, if we look at it on a moment-to-moment basis, is there's awareness, and there's the intention to connect with that inherent natural capacity to be conscious that we call more like being mindful or attentive or meditative, where it's a volitional, intentional engaging. And it's that which engages. There isn't someone apart from that who does it. It's just, there's that. But for conventional purposes, we say, of course, it's me doing it. Because it's not somebody else, that's for sure. And if I don't engage with it, it doesn't happen. Have you noticed that? We can't do it. We can't make meditation go somewhere. But if we don't engage with it, it's not going to happen by itself. So there's something about that engagement that's required. And can anything be obtained? Well, what do you mean by a thing? In terms of things, well, one can get a plate of dinner. That can be obtained on a meditation retreat. One can have some wonderful experiences. Obtained, again, has a sense of ownership. Wisdom and compassion and freedom and peace, yes, these things can develop and become more and more deeply the foundation and the root of one's existence. But one has no ownership of them. One has not obtained wisdom. If one has had contact with it, it's a blessing. Likewise, compassion, peace, and freedom. And as one understands the conditions that support the arising and the sustaining of these, and understands the conditions that actually support the dropping away of reactivity, of delusion, of conflict, and of bondage, then quite naturally one would seek to cultivate, to develop... In those ways. It seems to me that makes sense. And just another kind of slant on this why is it assumed that for something to be the self, it would have to be in my control? Referring here to the reasoning that because my body, thoughts, etc., are not in my control, they cannot be myself. Might the self be a fixed something which we did not choose? So that's interesting, isn't it? Because this is one of the fundamental sort of um, ways the Buddha invites people to look at their experience and deconstruct the imputation of self. Can I just finish my thought, and then I'll come to you on this one. Um, My thoughts could easily get lost here. Um, the, The Buddha said, so, okay, look at your experience. Well, look at what's happening here. Is it changing? And... The monks would reliably respond and the nuns and even the, the wiser lay people, yeah, it's changing. It's pretty obvious when we look at it. He says, okay, is it subject to your control? And they say, yeah, it's changing. No, it's not subject to my control. I can't make it do what I want it to. It's one of the fundamental things we encounter in practice. And so he says, not then some ultimate statement of metaphysics. He says, does it make sense to take that which is changing and not in your control to be yourself? Does it make sense is the question. Is it wise to do so, is the question. Not, don't do it, or you shouldn't do it, but is it wise? And the response is, no, it's not wise. Because if we take this to be self, we get entangled in suffering. It's about a cause and an effect. It's not about a metaphysical position. And so one could, if one wished, say that, you know, myself is a fixed something which we did not choose. One could. One could. What that might be would be a little hard to say anything more useful about. But sometimes we can have the sense that what's being pointed to is some kind of other dimensional reality or experience that's separate from this. And actually, there is nothing else. Absolutely. And yet, what is that this is can be known in a way in which it opens everything up. So, you know, the Buddha said. That there is no self to be found that is finite and with form, i.e., like a body. There's no self to be find, found that is with form and infinite, i.e., like the universe. He doesn't actually say no self to be found, he says self cannot be found in that anything which has form and is infinite, like the universe, the cosmos, which is big but has form. He says self is not found or well, there is no self to be found in that which is without form and finite such as the soul the idea of a soul it's like something formless but finite like I've got when you've got one and he says self is not to be found in that which could be seen to be without form and infinite like spirit or you know sometimes we here in Buddhist teaching in an attempt to point to something that's beyond what we can conceive as if, say, something like classically and commonly these days when he has the word awareness used as if it's a something. and It's infinite and vast. And awareness is infinite and vast but is not a something. It's a quality we can discern that's taking place, that's revealing itself. But it has no inherent existence and it's not separate from That which reveals it. So what is possible in terms of practice is to actually see clearly what is happening that gives rise to the sense of self and that actually allows that sense of self to drop away. And in that, I think it's only right to be able to articulate in terms of discovery. There is something that isn't something to be discovered. We talk about wisdom, we talk about realization, we talk about awakening, we talk about freedom. From the point of view of the self as uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche once said he said enlightenment is a great disappointment for the self because the self thinks it's going to get something out of this but it's not beyond being released which actually is quite something but not something else this, this, this is it and yet knowing that, what that is what this is That's what's possible for us as human beings. So it's lunchtime, and I'm aware there was. Was that a wish to respond to what I was speaking about? To ask something? Okay, good. I I hope so. I'm happy to... I don't even remember which question it was now of those. But um, I think there's a really healthy curiosity we can bring here. A sense of, okay, there's more to be understood. There's more to be understood. To not get into trying to figure it out, but at the same time let yourself feel the call or the pull of that interest to know more fully, more deeply. What is pointed to here is something subtle and in a kind of a ultimately remarkable and almost tragic way, so ordinary that we dismiss it out of hand. Even though it's right in front of us. And we're it. This is it. So thank you for your questions, for your listening, for your interest. I hope what I've shared has been of use and uh, if it's generated some useful clarity and maybe even some useful confusion, um, that's very much within the territory. And if anything I've said hasn't been helpful for you, then uh, I'm sorry, but... uh, That's how it came. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Together. And so may we all together here in our practice and in our lives come to know and have access to those resources that we need for our well-being, our support and our deepening. May we come to understand the, the teachings more fully, more widely and deeply, to abide and in wisdom, and compassion, in peace and in freedom. More and more for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings.